That is a profound thought that of all the things happening in the world today, and there's a lot going on, what happens in local churches where the gospel of Jesus is preached is the most significant thing, bigger than the Super Bowl. Uh, Nothing matters more in the world than what God's doing, and he's doing it through his gospel in his church. So that causes me to think as I'm walking up here, there's nowhere I'd rather be and no people I'd rather be with than the people of Emmaus Road Church. And what a privilege it is to bring God's word to you. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 3 through 11 this morning. There is a lot happening in the world. Uh, I don't know if you keep up with the news at all. But not even just counting the news, do you ever feel kind of overwhelmed by information coming at you, bombarded, surrounded, the noise? I mean, it's just everywhere. I was curious whether or not anybody had attempted to quantify this. I'm not even sure how you do that. But it turns out there's such a thing as information scientists who do have ways of trying to quantify these things. And they use this analogy of an 85-page newspaper is kind of the average, and, and this is study from 2007, so I don't think many newspapers are 85 pages anymore. Um, But imagine an 85-page newspaper, and they found, they estimated that in 1986, the average person received about 40 newspapers worth of information in a given day. 40 newspapers in a given day in 1986. In 2007, they estimated it was more like 174 newspapers a day of information coming at you. And that was like 13 years ago. So now it's probably like a million newspapers. Uh, I mean, the phone you have in your pocket or in your fingertips right now is more powerful than the computers they use to put a man on the moon, the processing power. So all of this information is constantly coming at us, and we are constantly analyzing it. Because all the information we receive, we are always filtering, is it true or is it false? And if it's true, what do I do with it? Do I accept it? Do I reject it? And a lot of that information is pretty simple, pretty safe, like, you know, what's the phone number for the doctor or where did I leave my keys? But in all of that information is all kinds of belief stuff, worldview stuff, truth claims, assertions that are telling you believe this, think this, value this. And they're truth claims about the world and about you and about your place in it and about God and what what the world is like. And so you're constantly filtering that by something. You have something in mind, some standard by which you evaluate that information. And it doesn't help that in the world today, there are tons of voices, people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and here's what the Bible says. So here's just a a small sampling. I just try to find some quotes from people who claim to be Christians, teachers of the word, stuff posted on social media and whatever. Here's one. This person, um, well, you will be too much for some people. Those aren't your people. Let your vibe attract your tribe. That's coming from somebody who calls uh, herself a pastor. You are meant to be the hero of your own story. It's a quote from a widely popular book by somebody who claims to be a Christian. That person also says, you should be the very first of your priorities. I, I trust in this church some of you already are going, Okay, that's not true. 
but you get the idea. There's a price to pay to become all you were created to be. If it were easy, everybody would do it. It takes people that have a made-up mind. So some of those sound more harmful than others. How do you filter what you hear? How do you discern what to receive, what to reject? I want to give our attention to 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11, with that question in mind. And like we did last week, I'm going to invite you to stand out of honor and reverence for God's word. If you're able, stand and let's read God's word. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, we honor you, and we honor you by honoring your word, which is true. And as Logan prayed, it revives our souls and it makes wise the simple. So we need you to do that for us this morning through your word. Would you refresh us? Would you feed us? Would you nourish our souls and revive us? Would you enlighten our eyes that we might know you rightly as you have revealed yourself and that we might treasure you and love you and that our joy in you would be full in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The main point of 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 11, is that the church of Jesus Christ, every church, every local church of Jesus, must preserve the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that means rejecting any teaching that adds to, or subtracts from, or in any way distorts the clarity of the gospel of Jesus. Every local church must preserve the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ by rejecting any other teaching, any doctrine, any idea, any philosophy, anything that sounds enlightened and intelligent if it adds to or subtracts from or distorts or detracts from the gospel in any way. I get that from verse 3 where Paul applies that idea to Timothy by saying, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Again, this is one of those cases where we're reading somebody else's mail. So the command in a 
passage of Scripture like this is the main point, except that command doesn't directly apply to you and me. You are not to remain in Ephesus, and those people are no longer alive that Timothy was supposed to confront. So what's the truth that Paul is applying to Timothy by which he can say to him, stay there and tell these people to stop? That phrase, teach any different doctrine, translates a single Greek word which Paul likely coined. It's not found anywhere outside of Christian writing, and it appears in the New Testament here and in chapter 6, to teach any different doctrine. It's a verb. One word, one verb, it's an action. Hetero didaskaleo. Hetero meaning different or strange. And didaskalia meaning to teach. To teach different, strange, foreign doctrine. Paul's main concern in this passage is this false teaching that diverges from the gospel. There's this false teaching spreading in the church in Ephesus. And Paul refers to the people spreading it as Certain persons, he refers to them that way twice. It seems to be an intentional way of maybe knocking down their overinflated idea of self-importance. He doesn't even call them by name here. They're just those certain people. So Paul coins this word for teaching different doctrine in order to clearly differentiate, to put their activity into a different category than what he does, what Timothy does, what every elder in the church is called to do. And it's possible that these certain persons were actually elders in the church in Ephesus. But whatever they're teaching, it's different enough that Paul calls it something unique in order to draw a clear line and set up this contrast. And that's how the whole passage is set up. There's this contrast between what they're doing and what elders in the church are called to do in preaching the gospel. Throughout 1 Timothy, we'll hear Paul say to Timothy again and again things like command and teach these things. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So teaching is central. Preaching is a priority in the church. But there's gospel preaching, and then there's false teaching. There's sound doctrine. You see that in verse 10. That word comes up again in chapter 6, and then two more times in 2 Timothy. And then there's this different doctrine, strange doctrine, foreign doctrine. When Paul calls it different, hetero doctrine, he has something else in mind. Different than what? Well, it's different than the gospel. In verse 11, Paul equates sound doctrine with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's hard to imagine lifting up the gospel any more than that. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It's his gospel, and he is a blessed and happy God, and he has shared his glory, put it on display for us to see and enjoy by sending his son Jesus to die for us. And so what's at stake in the gospel is the glory of God, the blessed God, the happy God, his gospel. And so anything different than that, Paul says, that must be confronted. It must be stopped. It must be rejected. And because preserving the purity of the gospel is central, we must never assume that everyone's clear on what the content of the gospel is. So here it is in Paul's words just a few verses later, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's another commendation. This is it. If you want to know the difference between sound doctrine and strange doctrine, this is trustworthy, Timothy, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
That, you want to see the, the glory of the blessed God? Look no further. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst of them, he says, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display in me, he would display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It's when God saves sinners that God puts on display in sinners his glory and his grace and his patience and his mercy. And he does that so that more and more people would see it and believe in him for eternal life. So sinners are saved from the judgment of God through Jesus Christ who came to save them and all who believe in him have eternal life. That's the truth of the gospel that Paul is passionate about protecting. There are all kinds of other gospel truths and gospel implications we could unpack from the gospel itself, but that's it. That's the core of the message, and that message is under constant attack. It was in Paul's day. Paul warned Timothy, it's, it's only going to continue. It's going to get worse. Expect more false teachers to come, not just the ones who are already there. There are going to be more, and it continues in our day. This is not a new problem. The gospel is under constant attack. And here's the thing. We would expect that. We do expect that. We're not surprised when an unbelieving world rejects the gospel. But what Paul has in mind here is threat from within the church, which is a totally different kind of thing. From inside the church. These are people who call themselves Christians. They would agree with the, the basic message of the gospel. Yeah, we, we like Jesus too. We're here for that. And We've got some other cool things to share with you. And that's where it gets tricky. In Ephesus, there were these false teachers who had ascended to some prominence, some influence within the church. That's the situation here. And it is deadly serious. Dead serious. Paul warns Timothy throughout this letter, chapter 119, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Chapter 4, verse 1, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to false teachings. Chapter 6, verse 10. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is dead serious. The very end of the letter, the conclusion, Paul says to Timothy in chapter 6, 20 and 21. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That's the thing about false teaching. It always sets itself up as some new insight, something everybody else is missing, something that's essential and it's going to revolutionize your life. Falsely called knowledge. And Paul says, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. What you believe comes out your fingertips, whether it's true or false. And ideas that distract from the gospel or detract from it, or add to it, those ideas have eternal consequences. So, Paul urges Timothy. It's a strong, authoritative word. He urges him. And evidently, it's not the first time, because he said, as I urge you when I was in Macedonia, when I was still there with you, I told you this, and I'm writing to make sure you know exactly what your marching orders are in Ephesus. Timothy, charge. That is, issue an authoritative command to these people to stop teaching what they're teaching. So that, that's the main point. That's what's going on in this passage. But this is what I love about God's word. Paul doesn't just tell Timothy, 
tell them to stop. He, he gives Timothy and you and me compelling reasons to heighten our affection for the gospel and our commitment to preserve it and protect it. And he does that by drawing contrast, setting the gospel next to the false teaching so that our confidence in the gospel would rise and our clarity to see that false teaching is worthless, that 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 would grow and increase. We would see the distinction between the gospel and everything that's not gospel. And so through these sharp contrasts, the Holy Spirit, I believe, means to stir your deep conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is vastly superior to every competing teaching and every other philosophy and every other piece of wisdom that's coming at you constantly, even the most innocent-sounding ones. So here are four reasons to keep the gospel central, to cling to it, to treasure it, to keep it front and center in your thinking, to filter every other truth claim that you hear through the gospel, to vigilantly guard the purity of the gospel. Here are four reasons. Guard the gospel because only the gospel establishes the economy of God. Everything else, all the other philosophies of man, are useless to this end. That's the first contrast Paul draws. It's in verse 4. He says, false doctrines promote speculations rather than promoting the stewardship from God that is by faith. Or as we saw last week, and I argued, you could translate that phrase, the stewardship from God, as the economy of God. That is, God's way of ordering and arranging all reality. So that's the first contrast. False teachings promote speculations. The gospel promotes the economy of God, God's way of ordering reality. We don't know a lot about the specific content of the false teaching or false teachings that were going on in Ephesus at the time. It's clear that that's not Paul's priority, to get into all the nuanced details of refuting those things. He just refers to them broadly here as myths and endless genealogies. What's he talking about? Well, we know from outside the New Testament that word myths is often used by others to refer to far-fetched stories that are not true. Oftentimes they were about the gods. We know from Plato's writing, he used that term to describe stories that were not only untrue, like not just inaccurate, but they were actually deceitful, meant to mislead people. And people were using them, these fanciful stories about the gods, to justify their own immoral behavior. So elaborate stories about the gods that in the end just get them off the hook for their behavior. So the term myths doesn't tell us what the content is. It does tell us, Paul's heightening this contrast, it's not true. Whatever they're teaching, it is false and it's dangerous. And he refers to it in the plural, myths, probably to highlight that. They've got all these different ideas and they probably contradict each other and it's just not true. What about endless genealogies? Well, that could refer to a couple different things. It may have been the practice among some Jews to try to trace their own ancestry all the way back to claim certain rights and privileges by bloodline. We know, for example, to be a priest, you had to be a descendant from that household. So that could have been a practice. It might have been kind of an ethnic superiority thing. Could have been also some speculative thinking about the earliest stories in the Bible, like the book of Genesis and other stories made up from outside of what God's word says. So maybe people adding in fanciful stories about Adam and Eve and Noah and whatever from outside of scripture. It does seem like there was some kind of ethnic superiority, some exclusivism going on, some kind of sinful pride rooted in race or identity here, which would explain why a couple times in this letter, Paul hammers this point, God is the savior of all people. 
When he says that in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 4, verse 10, he's probably directly challenging these false teachers who are setting up some kind of exclusive club. These are the people who really get it. These are the people who are in, only if you can find yourself in these genealogies. Again, the point Paul has here is not to get into the specific content, but just to hold up the effect. What does all of that do? What does that kind of fascination with those things do? Well, it just promotes speculation. That word just means empty, fruitless, futile, unproductive ideas, not based in any reality at all. So it's not accomplishing anything of worth or importance in reality because it's not connected to reality at all. It's purely speculative. Jesus plus genealogies. Jesus plus the distant past and our wild ideas. Jesus plus some other man-made rules sprinkled in. None of that promotes the economy of God, God's way of ordering and managing reality. So they're useless. But the economy of God, on the other hand, that is understood, Paul says, by faith. By faith. That is, through the gospel, those who receive the gospel and believe it begin to understand how God orders the world. And they begin to live in alignment with what God is doing in the world. Because the gospel fundamentally reconciles you to God. And when you're reconciled to God and you're aligned that way, everything else begins to line up with that. It's by trusting God as he's revealed himself in Scripture and in the person and work of Jesus that you begin to understand and put into place the economy of God. And this is crucial to understand in our day. Everybody wants to change the world, improve society. We live in one of those cycles right now where we're hearing supposedly our best and our brightest ideas about how to improve society and their policies for doing all of that. Society does not change in God's way when the right candidate gets voted in or when the right policies get enacted. The world changes, according to Scripture, as people hear and believe the gospel, as individuals are changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love how Doug Wilson says it. As it is not possible to make a good omelet with rotten eggs, even with the best recipe or with superb equipment, the first order of business is always to deal with the eggs first. It doesn't matter how good your policy ideas are, how great your economic plan is. It doesn't matter all of that if you don't have good eggs. The omelet is not going to turn out. Without that, the finest vision for the best social order is going to wind up as a ghastly hellhole that virtually everyone can fit into. The people involved in the project, that is, in the church, have to be right with God and be walking with Him. And that happening, people being right with God, when that happens to a lot of people, that's the foundation of everything else. When lots of people are right with God through the gospel, that's the foundation of everything. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, I don't think when Paul talks about myths and endless genealogies that it would be right to mean or apply there's anything wrong with Ancestry.com or uh, 23andMe or I don't think he would have any problem with at, but I do think we have our own myths and genealogies that threaten the church today. And, and the most simple way to look for this is just to pay attention to everything that you hear. How do they define sin? Do they define it from God's word or not? 
And is there a Savior? What's the hope offered? What's the remedy offered? Is it Jesus or not? If it's not, it's not the gospel, no matter how much they quote Scripture. So there's a huge, I think, fascination with the Enneagram today. This is going to help me understand myself, finally, so that my life can improve. That's interesting to see how people observe human personalities and behaviors and whatever. But the Enneagram cannot save you. And I'm alarmed at how many Christians I hear talking about it like it can. Like, this is it. This, this is going to explain my soul to me so I can get better. No, only Jesus can save you. I think Jordan Peterson and his Jungian philosophy cloaked in Christianese. If you don't know who that is, that's fine. But I mention him because I think a lot of people do. And he has a huge following even from within the church. And he has enough Christian language in there for people to go, he sounds kind of Christian. And he's not. It's just idolatry cloaked with Christian language leading people away from Jesus Christ, and it's serious. I think that there is a form of nationalism. By the way, when I mention these things, this is not meant to be exhaustive, and I'm not going to get into all of these things. And I realize some of these might cause questions in your mind. So if you want to talk more, if this provokes you in any way, I'd love to talk more about these things. But I think there's a kind of nationalism that is idolatrous in our country a form of American exceptionalism, which I think is very different than patriotism. Patriotism is love of your neighbor and love for your mother country. Everybody should love the country they come from and their neighbor. But to have an idolatrous elevation of yourself or your country over every other's is dangerous. I think critical race theory and intersectionality creeping into the church is a huge issue in our society today that says, here's how you understand the world. There are oppressors and oppressed. And you are an oppressor, not based on what you individually do, but based on your skin color. And you are oppressed, not whether or not you individually have been oppressed, but based on your skin color. You're just in these categories. And those are the people clamoring about we got to get rid of racism. And the very thing they're promoting, I don't know if there's anything more racist than that, to define people fundamentally by their skin color. And they're the ones saying, here's the solution to racism. There's a movement called deconstructionism in the church People who claim to be Christians and like the Bible, except when you hear them talk about the Bible, they're always undermining it, saying it's not really authoritative, we don't really know what it means, it's not actually true, you can't really trust it, and faith, they have this weird way of redefining it, faith is not trusting God and taking him at his word like the Bible says, faith is doubting, that's faith, that's dangerous. I think the open and affirming movement in the church, maybe you know the name like Jen Hatmaker and others who promote that this is what the church has to do. We have to ditch our teaching on sexuality, homosexuality, sexual morality, and just say, it's all fine. I think that's a threat. I think we have all kinds of things that face us today. My point isn't to get into all of those, but to say, open your eyes to evaluate everything coming at you, only the gospel. If you don't hear people pointing you back to Jesus who died for your sins, they don't have the answer. Even if you say, well, they're against racism and that's bad, yes, but are they pointing you to Jesus who can save you from your sins? If not, they don't have the answer for racism, trust me. You might say, well, I really like their economic policy. Do they point you back to ultimately trusting in Jesus, ordering your life, taking responsibility under the lordship of Jesus? Because if not, they don't have the answer. Only the gospel of Jesus promotes the economy of God. Everything else is worthless speculation because, here's the next point, only the gospel produces love. And everything else is loveless. Paul says in verse 5, the aim of our charge 
the charge, remember, was Timothy. Stop those false teachers. The aim of stopping the false teachers is love. Love is the summary of what life in the economy of God looks like. It's worth clarifying what Paul means by love since I don't know if there's any word in our day more distorted and perverted than the word love. When Paul speaks of love, he does not mean validating other people and making them feel good about themselves. This has nothing to do with feelings, what other people feel. I think that's how our world defines it. You love me if you make me feel good. And if you hurt my feelings, you don't love me. No, love is not defined by feelings. It's defined by the word of God. When Paul speaks of love, we know what he means from places like Romans 13, 8 through 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Love means, here's how I would sum it up, affectionate, from the heart, self-sacrifice for the good of others. Self-sacrifice for the good of others from the heart. Self-sacrifice for the good of others. Love does no wrong. Love fulfills the law, Romans 13. Or self-sacrifice, I get that from Ephesians 5 too. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we know there's some self-sacrifice involved in loving others. And I say it's from the heart. It's affectionate because Paul says in Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. So you don't do this begrudgingly. You actually want to. You actually care about people. And only the gospel produces that kind of love. This is what we would call, what I mentioned last week, humble orthodoxy. The aim of our charge, confronting false teachers, is love. How do those two things go together? That just doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, to confront people and tell them they're wrong, and not just tell them they're wrong, but to tell them they must stop. I mean, that's like the cardinal sin in our culture, to silence anybody. Those people are going to rise up and speak truth to power if you talk to them like that, Timothy. No, Timothy, do this in This is love. The loving thing to do. I mean, it is possible to be obsessed with theology and doctrine and debates in a way that puffs up and creates arrogance, right? Here's the difference. And I just check my heart all the time. Do I want to be right and prove my point and win an argument and think, I bet others think I look really smart because I made that argument like that. You just crushed that person. I bet they're impressed with me, and I bet they think that person's dumb now. Well, it's clear the aim in that is not love at all. Even if what's coming out of our mouths is technically true, Paul has a totally different aim in mind. Truth that produces love. The aim is love. We want to get the gospel right because we want love to increase and abound. And that tells us something about the importance of doctrine. Getting your theology wrong is way more serious than, you know, like getting a question wrong on a test. If you get your theology wrong, you can't love. Whatever else you're doing, as nice as you think you are, all the things you think you're doing in love, you're not loving people. You're not loving people if your actions are not informed by the gospel. I get that from 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 5. Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, if anyone, anyone who is wrong about the gospel, doesn't agree with the gospel, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is puffed up, verse 4, with conceit and understands nothing, and has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce 
Not love. Listen to these. These are relational sins. They produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. That's the effect of everything outside of the gospel. Only the gospel produces love. Everything else produces these relational sins, no matter how loving and nice it sounds. And that's because only the gospel changes you from the inside. Only the gospel changes you from the inside. Everything else is powerless. Look at the rest of verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Where does love come from? Those are all internal things. Pure heart, good conscience, a sincere faith. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners can produce those things in you. The false teachers, on the other hand, Paul says about them, the ones devoted to their myths and their genealogies, they couldn't change the heart. And Paul says in verse 6, they had actually swerved from, or literally, they are missing out on a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. They have swerved from these, and what happens when you miss those is you wander into all kinds of other vain, empty, fruitless discussion. Verse 6. So they swerved from the path, they missed out on the heart change, and everything else that they're promoting and teaching has no chance at promoting this kind of love because it can't change the heart. So they were pursuing some kind of, we can guess, outside-in approach. We can speculate about that from chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, these false teachers, listen to what they did, they forbid marriage... And they required abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 1 Timothy 4, 3. So the false teachers were telling people, you, you can't get married and you've got to follow this diet. And that sounds a lot like an issue Paul addresses in Colossians 2, 23, where he says these, talking about human teachings, man-made rules about what you can eat and can't eat, what you can touch and can't touch. These human man-made rules have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Everything that comes from the outside in is powerless to change the only thing about you that needs to be changed, your heart. And in our sinful pride, I mean, isn't this true? It's always easier to blame other people, and outside circumstances, and all of those things, and say, that, that's what it is. If I can just get all that, if everybody else would start behaving, then I would be a better person, I'd be nicer. You don't become more loving when your circumstances change, or when your diet changes. You become more loving when God changes your heart, which he does through the gospel. And Paul mentions these three things, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. A pure heart, that's at the core of your humanity. The Bible uses the word heart to just sum up the inner person. That is the seat of your thoughts and your desires and your affection and your worship. It's with the heart that you relate to God. It's with the heart that you lust and crave for sin. And it's from the heart that anyone calls on the Lord. The heart is the core of who you are which is different than positive thinking, which tells you you just change how you think, change the thoughts in your head and you change. Thinking the truth is important. Your heart has to change because that's the core of it all because that's the seat of your worship, which means that's where idolatry comes from. Sin is a heart problem. Jesus says whatever comes out of the heart 
is what defiles a person. And the gospel is good news for this. Paul says in Titus 2, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Jesus gave himself to purify our impure hearts so that this could happen. And when God saves a person, the work he does begins in the heart. He pours his Holy Spirit into your heart, Romans 5, 5. He causes his light to shine in your heart, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He causes the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, to behold him, Ephesians 1, 8. He starts in your heart and changes you there. Only the gospel can do that. So a good conscience, what's that? Well, Paul contrasts a good conscience with a seared conscience. Again, chapter 4, where he's talking about these people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods. He's, he calls those people liars whose consciences are seared. When I think of somebody with a seared conscience, my mind goes first to like, you know, a, a sociopath who has no empathy, no conscience. You know, they could torture animals and feel nothing. It just doesn't phase them at all. That's not what Paul has in mind. Clearly, he's not talking about people who have no sense of morality because he's calling these people with a seared conscience. These are the very people who have very strict rules about what they eat and don't eat. And rules about marriage that go way beyond what God says about marriage. So they have some kind of rules. Why is their conscience seared then? Because it's not tethered to God's word. It's tethered to man-made standards. And any time humans try to improve God's law, this is the, you hear this all the time, people reject God's word because it's so restrictive, right? It's so harsh, it's so unkind, it's so unloving. God's word, just like a straitjacket. So we got to get rid of that. But they don't go into nothing. They go into their own made-up rules, which are always going to be worse. Those man-made rules will actually be unjust, unloving, unfair. Just heard about this interview with Aaron Rodgers the other day. Had a Christian family, Christian upbringing, and he, when, when he was asked, what was it, what was the kind of the, the crux, the breaking point for you that led you away from the church? He said, I'm, I'm just not into rules and regulations. Which, as a Vikings fan, I think is funny since he's always complaining to the refs about people who he thinks violated the rules. But it's the rules and regulations, right? That, that's what did it. But as soon as you ditch God's word, you end up tethering your conscience to something else, and those standards are just going to be impossible. We see this going on in our culture right now. People who have rejected God's word are enforcing all of these standards that are absolutely impossible, which is why even within like the, the hashtag MeToo movement, nobody can figure it out. What exactly are the rules? What's permitted and not permitted? And they're just falling apart because... They're making it up as they go. I mean, the very people making all the trashy movies suddenly are supposed to be the experts on sexual morality and what's permissible and what's not. God's law is like a fence that keeps you in, a place that's safe and it keeps dangerous things out. But as soon as you ditch that, you end up with man-made rules that are like prison bars that just enslave you. It's through the gospel that your mind becomes subject to Jesus as Lord and you have a good conscience and a cleansed conscience by his blood and a sincere faith, which just means genuinely trusting Jesus alone. And that's what comes out in love, faith expressing itself in love. That's where love comes from. And only the gospel can change you from the inside because only the gospel gives grace. Everything else is graceless. In this last contrast, Paul pits the ignorance of false teachers against the 
the certainty of those who understand the gospel. When you know the gospel, you have confident certainty. He says the false teachers, they desire to be teachers of the law, verse 7, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions, which is a double insult. They don't know what they're talking about, the subject they're talking about, and they don't even know what's coming out their mouths about what they're talking about. They don't know the content they're talking about or the things they're saying about what they're talking about. In contrast to that, Paul asserts his apostolic authority with this confidence and certainty when he says, but we know that the law is good. We know that. We know that because we understand it in light of the gospel of Jesus. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this. We know we understand God's word and what it's for. And he goes on to outline the lawful use of the law. These false teachers, they're using God's word and they're mishandling it. God's word can be used and it can be misused. And again, that's the thing that makes false teaching from inside the church so dangerous because the false teachers are always quoting the Bible. And they're saying, I've got some spin on that. I've got an interpretation of that that's really going to blow your mind and enlighten things and set you free from all this. You can use and misuse the Bible. You have to know what it's for. And Paul says, the law is not for the just. So here's the condition. What is the law for? It's not for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then from this point, these next several, they move sequentially through the Ten Commandments. Starting with Commandment 5, those who strike their fathers and mothers. That fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. These are, strike might be a, a, a generous translation. It's like people who murder their fathers and mothers. Which is, what's the most disrespectful thing you could do to your parents? Well, strike them or strike them down and kill them. So he goes to the extreme. So those first three pairs are probably covering the first part of the law. No other gods, no idols, don't use God's name in vain, keep the Sabbath. What do you call people who blaspheme and break the Sabbath and worship idols? Well, you call them lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. And then he works through the next side of the law, fifth commandment. He says those who strike their fathers and mothers. Sixth commandment is don't murder. He says the law is for murderers. Seventh commandment is do not commit adultery. He says the law is for the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Sexual immorality, here that word, just a broad term that applies to any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, and he includes homosexuality as well. He, He goes to the extreme to show people who are breaking the law of God. That's the seventh commandment. Eighth commandment is don't steal. And he, for his example there, he speaks of human traffickers, enslavers. The Greek word is people who kidnap people and sell them as slaves. What's the worst kind of stealing you could do? To steal a person and sell them into slavery. And if that had been translated more accurately hundreds of years ago, that may have made a big difference in those who claimed to be Christians and participated in the slave trade. Ninth commandment is don't lie. And so he names liars and perjurers. And then, in case anybody thinks they have any wiggle room, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And the law is for those people. Those who understand the gospel of God's extravagant grace and his glory, they understand what it's for. And those who don't, don't know what it's for, and so they misuse it. But that doesn't stop them from using it and quoting it and citing it. And and that's what makes it so so dangerous. And here's what I notice. False teachers, 
because they don't understand that the law is meant to expose sin, to show you your need for a Savior, to point you to Jesus, they always think God's word is too harsh and needs to be lightened up a little bit. So they're finding creative ways to reinterpret it to say, don't worry, God doesn't actually call that a sin. (laughs) That was close. And then they turn around and they find a way to say that God's word actually is condemning all these other people over here who are trusting Jesus and walking in his ways. So let me give you what may be an especially controversial example from our culture today. Matthew Vines is the executive director of the Reformation Project. Here's how they define themselves. It's a, Reformation Project is a Bible-based Christian organization that works to promote inclusion of LGBTQ people by reforming church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. So Matthew Vines is probably the most prominent name, somebody who's trying to do exegetical work to show, I mean, he's actually trying to interpret all the passages in the Bible that speak about homosexuality, to do Greek word studies and everything, to show, turns out Paul had nothing, he had no problem with loving, committed, monogamous, homosexual relationships. Turns out all Paul was condemning was men who abused boys. Or anybody who tried homosexuality who wasn't actually like, Matthew Vine says, they didn't have categories like gender identity like we have today. So, you know, like, his attempt is weak. I mean, there's no scholarly support for this. He, he makes things up about these words. But did you catch what he's doing there? The point of this Reformation project is to reform church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. So it turns out the Bible doesn't have anything to say about homosexuality. Instead, it actually turns out that the people it condemns are the people who believe that the Bible condemns homosexuality. Those are the people who are wrong and unloving and uncharitable and unkind, and they need to be corrected. It's amazing reversal. But we don't have to fear that God's word is somehow unkind to those who have practiced homosexuality or those who have committed murder or those who have lied or those who have broken God's law in any way. The law actually leads us to grace. The law is not for the just. That is, it's not against, there's no law against justice, walking in God's way. But the law reveals sin, Romans 3, 19 through 20. The law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You come under the law and you squirm because it touches some of your sin, guess what? Everybody's mouth is stopped under the law. Nobody has an excuse under the law. Everybody's guilty. It's not unkind or unloving. It's not singling people out. It's just saying nobody has an excuse. You can't say, well, good thing I don't struggle with that sin. Everybody's mouth is stopped and the whole world is held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says the same thing in Romans 7, 7. What should we say? Is the law itself sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. The law shows us what sin is and that's the most loving thing because that's what drives us to Jesus Christ. It's good news because... There's a savior. And those who think they can be more loving than God by telling people, don't worry, you're not sinning, they deprive them of the hope of a savior. If you're not sinning, you don't need a savior. And if you don't need a savior, you're fine on your own. And then you condemn people to the wrath of God because you thought you were loving them more than God could. Only the gospel can give you grace 
Think, think about it like this. Imagine a doctor who's so concerned with being liked by his patients that he just says, I just never want to, you know, be the bearer of bad news and give somebody a diagnosis. I would just hate to be the one to walk in and ruin their day and tell them they actually have some disease or they have cancer. I just like to give people good news that makes them smile so they like me and we feel good about each other. And That would be malpractice, wouldn't it? If you never bear the news that somebody actually has a condition, you never get to have the joy of prescribing the cure. And it's the law that shows us our sin. The law is for lawbreakers so that lawbreakers can be saved. And Paul says a few verses later, I'm, I'm the worst of them all, a lawbreaker. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And when the law is applaud, applied to the lawless, then the hope of the gospel can be offered. And hearts are changed. Only the gospel can do all that. Only the gospel can point you to the grace of God, which changes your heart, which produces love, which establishes the economy of God to the glory of God. Only the gospel, no other message. So you have a crucial role to play in holding out the purity of that gospel message to the world. If it's overwhelming, just think of it this way. Whatever you hear, are they defining what's wrong in terms of the law of God? If not, if it's some other standard, it's not wrong. Only God's word defines that for us. That's what God's word is for. And are they pointing to Jesus as the only hope for that? If not, it's not good news. And the aim of all of this is love. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for speaking. We just glory in you and your word and its timelessness that we can read Timothy's mail 2,000 years later and find that it, it speaks to the things we deal with and gives us clarity and points us back to Jesus Christ alone who came into the world to save sinners. And so would you increase our understanding of the gospel, our love for the truth of the gospel, our conviction that we, we can't improve grace and your love, we can't be more merciful, more kind to people than you have been in Jesus so that we would hold out the gospel with the confidence that this is the loving thing for the world. Make yourself known in us and through us in this city, in this world, in this culture. God, would you move? We pray that you would pour out your spirit on our nation and turn hearts to Jesus in repentance for the lawless and the disobedient and the ungodly. Turn people to Jesus in repentance. It's in his name we pray. Amen.